Hello and welcome to this week's Mooney on Politics podcast, which has been recorded on Wednesday the 11th of May. It's around five o'clock. And as always, this looks at the most recent piece I've written for Broadsheet, which in the turn itself looks at last week's Northern Ireland Assembly elections. Now, tempting though it is to have this podcast as a self-congratulatory oh look that I said and I say all along that the DUP wouldn't do as badly as many were predicting and that indeed they only lost three seats it still isn't a good result for the DUP and it does signal as I've said before an overall trend for unionism and a contracting of unionism the results are historic no matter how you look at it but my argument is that they're just not era changing the history has been made something significant has happened but it isn't quite everything that Sinn Féin would have us believe. But neither is it as unremarkable as it seems that certainly Dublin and definitely London want to suggest. So I'll come back to that in a second. So I'll just go through, as I said out in Broadchip, because I started off with a par- parallel, because about for about 40 years from the early 30s up to the late 1970s, or actually maybe I should say actually more correctly, the early 1970s, Many weighty academic tomes on Karl Marx and on Charles Darwin attempted to analyse how and why Marx had decided to ask the father of the theory of evolution if he would accept an invitation to de- from Marx to dedicate one of his volumes of Das Kapital to him, and why Darwin politely but firmly declined the request. And it was an academic conundrum which had intrigued and perplexed many fine scholars, from both the left and from the right, for, and looking at this from both those perspectives, each, offer, each offering complex and multi-layer interpretations about what had motivated each of the individuals. Was Marx just seeking Darwin's approval? And by the way, it's well known that Marx actually admired Darwin's work, though not necessarily agreed with all of it. Or was he attempting to draw parallels between his and Darwin's theories and perhaps win the great man over to his arguments? And was Darwin's refusal driven by a wariness of Marx's politics and the fear of being associated with them? Now, for decades, noted academics debated and dissected the contents of a letter from Darwin found in the Marx family papers and dated the 13th of October 1880. In the letter, Darwin opens by extending his thanks for, quote, the kind letter and the enclosure, end quote, and after some pleasantries, firmly rejects the request stating, Quote, I should prefer the part or volume not to be dedicated to me, as it has always been my object to avoid writing on religion, and I have confined myself to science. End of quote. Now, in all that discussion and analysis, it seems that no one thought to find the original letter from Marx, which had requested Darwin's approval for a dedication. So that story of Marx and Darwin was accepted, it became instilled and embedded in the minds of experts, and nobody questioned it. But, as Francis Ween points out in his 1999 biography of Marx, it wasn't until the early 1970s, actually in the late 1960s, did it occur to anyone to go in search of the original letter, and did it occur to anyone to ask, well, why was Darwin making such a specific reference to religion? Because Marx doesn't write about religion. Indeed, it took a young graduate student from the University of California, Margaret Fay, to wonder where was the original letter. And she quickly came to realise that the whole story was a nonsense. It was untrue. Because the October 13th letter referred to earlier, though it did come from Darwin, it was not actually addressed to Karl Marx. In fact, it turns out it was addressed to a guy called Edward Aveling. And Aveling was writing to Darwin to seek his dedication for a slim guide to the theory of evolution, which Aveling had written entitled The Student's Darwin. Now, the Marx connection only came about much later, 
because the coincidence is, is that Aveling eventually became the paramour of Marx's daughter Eleanor. And the letter ended up in the Marx family archive as Aveling had assisted Eleanor to, com- to pull together her father's papers. Indeed, that Aveling had written a couple of articles linking both Darwin and Marx as people he knew and citing his own letter from Darwin. And when all, that, all those articles were put together, they were all put into the one file, including the letter from Darwin to Aveling. But it's only afterwards, when academics looked at it, they didn't dawn on them. You see, it's surprisingly easy for very attractive and intriguing tales to go from being simply unchallenged to becoming accepted in controversial matters of fact. And it does not require bad faith or deliberate misdirection, just a desire to imagine that the things you wish were true really were true. And I think there's hints of this in some of the early analysis of the results from last week's Northern Ireland Stormont election. And not all of them, by the way, on the one side. Because you get words and phrases such as seismic and era-changing have been bandied about far too easily. And on the other hand, however, you also have the petty attempts to dismiss the significance of the result, as both the Tarnished and Taoiseach attempted to do last weekend. The attempt by Minister Coveney to turbocharge this, both on Sunday and again on Monday in an interview with the Cork Examiner, but with his assertion that the border poll, quote, is not even on the radar. End of quote. Now, I suppose we should be grateful at least that our part-time Defence Minister knows what a radar is. The comments of Messrs. Fradker, Coveney and Martin stand in stark contrast to the more constructive remarks of the former teacher Bertie Hearn. And by the way, they weren't the only ones at it. Look across to London, where you had a bizarre intervention by the UK Justice Secretary Dominic Rabb, who claimed on Sunday that 58% of people had fully voted either for parties who support the union or for parties who do not support constitutional change. He basically just took all the alliance votes and put them under one banner. He still came up with 42% of people then, however, in favour of unity. So I think he should be very careful about pulling on that string too hard. Anyone who's ever read anything I've ever written before or has listened to my podcast knows, look, I'm not a Sinn Féin supporter. Not only that, I'm highly critical of them. I've never given a Sinn Féin candidate a preference on any ballot paper down here. And if I were living in Northern Ireland, I would have voted the SDLP last, th- last Thursday without any question of doubt. Not only that, look, I've actually supported and helped the SDLP whenever I, whenever I can over the last 30 years. But I have no problem in saying that Sinn Féin's emergence as the largest party in Northern Ireland was historic and that Michelle O'Neill should be the North's next First Minister when the Assembly meets this week. And to say anything otherwise is both begrudging and undemocratic. There is much that I dislike about Sinn Féin's extrapolation of the result into something beyond its genuine significance. But this takes nothing away from the reality that Sinn Féin won more seats and more votes than any other party in Northern Ireland. That's simply a statement of fact. So the starting point for any fair and substantive political analysis of the results should be that politics in Northern Ireland have changed and, to quote uh, Fianna Fáil's Jim O'Callaghan in a tweet from last Sunday, 100 years ago Northern Ireland was designed to ensure it would always be under unionist control. That design has now disappeared. Indeed, he, make, he went on to make the point that effectively that design had disappeared under the Good Friday Agreement, and we were now seeing that's, that coming to fruition. But, the way, but it's important to bear in mind that there are some downsides to the results. Downsides that undermine the claim that this is seismic. But before we turn to the downsides, let's look at the upsides, because they are critically important. Now, I've already mentioned the main one, the mandate from the Nationalist First Minister. 
The next one is the emergence of alliances as the third party of Northern Ireland politics. Now, it pains me that some of this alliance advance was on the back of SDLP losses, not least the loss of Nicol Mallon's seat in North Belfast. But having the growing other, i.e. people who don't identify as either nationalist or unionist, that other community, having them represented in such a cohesive and clear manner in the Assembly may help end the bipolar crisis of weak politics that we have seen from both the DUP and Sinn Féin. It is a bipolarity to which both governments have, have contributed because they have spent most of the last 20 years seeking to broker cosy backroom deals with the two big parties to the exclusion of the other smaller parties. And breaking this, all we need to do is get the DUP and Shinners on board in the job is done approach. And having the three main parties in the room may make deals harder to reach, but they will hopefully stick when concluded. The other big plus is the increased majorities in the new Assembly for both the Northern Ireland Protocol and for the institutions themselves. Now, there was a majority for both in the last Assembly. Now, not that you'd know this to listen to anyone from the DUP. But thanks to the DUP insistence that this election be fought on its chosen territories of dumping the Protocol and having only a Unionist as First Minister, those majorities for the Protocol and for the institutions increased. We should not lose sight of that. Speaking of the DUP setting the parameters for the election, its virulently anti-nationalist rhetoric, not to mention its participation in some very dodgy and shady loyalist organised anti-protocol rallies across the province, which helped shore up Sinn Féin's support, often at the expense of the ex-DLP, but not exclusively. Now, that kind of brings me to the downsides, and I'm kind of really going to focus on one. Now, let me say again that none of the downsides I'm I'm going to talk about here diminish Sinn Féin's entitlement to nominate a First Minister. They simply remind us that all victories come at costs, and these are costs you cannot disregard. The first downside is one that I've actually discussed in previous articles and previous comments, and concerns the better-than-expected performance of the DUP. Now, while Sir Geoffrey's party is on a downward trajectory, it hasn't been as steep, nor will it be, nor will it continue to be as dramatic as the polls or the pundits have suggested. Though the DUP's first preference vote share dropped by almost seven percent, a lot of it, forty to forty-five thousand votes, even maybe slightly higher, went straight to the DUV and then came immediately back in the form of second or third preferences. This enabled the DUP to cut its seat losses to just three, coupled with a very, very smart voting strategy leaving them going into the election with 28 seats and coming back out with 25. In terms of the Assembly, this means that just 37 of the 90 MLAs are now officially designated as Unionist. That's a drop drop of three seats, all DUP seats, since 2017. And while the Ulster Unionists are down one seat from 10 to 9, Independent Unionists, primarily in the form of Alex Easton in Strangford, are up from 1 to 2. That is a drop of one less on the other side. The number of MLAs designating as nationalists has dropped by four, from 39 to 35. And while this is not dramatic, neither should it be hailed as an achievement. The loss of the four STLP seats is not a win for anyone, and that includes Sinn Féin, despite the crowing and hailing it has done since the ballot box was opened, that the SDLP slump was a deserved punishment for having dared to criticise Sinn Féin. None of us who advocate strongly and committedly for Irish unity should allow the symbolic importance of the results 
to use the phraseology of Congressman Richie Neal, to ignore the reality that the nationalist vote is static and has been static for some years. And while Sinn Féin has had evident vested interest in trumpeting its own successes and primarily seeing unity as a means of driving up its own support, the wider movement for unity cannot ignore these factors. Because that wider movement for, for unity has a responsibility to advocate for unity, not just to use it as a slogan, and to do so with a structured and detailed vision of what a new Ireland could look like and how it would work. This is what the SNP did in 2013 with their 650-page Scotland's Future Plan for Scottish independence. Because that's what we should be doing. We shouldn't just be marking the fifth anniversary of Gerry Adams' call for a referendum within five years with, well, frankly, another call for a referendum within five years. Because that's historic in the wrong way. Sinn Féin goes back continually to this line of, we need a referendum within five years. I think a referendum is coming. I think it quite possibly will, will be due and should happen before 2030. But it should not happen until we are prepared for it. And Sinn Féin's standard response is there should be a citizens' assembly or the government should produce a white paper. I think we have to stop waiting for other people to do things and we need to start doing things ourselves. I, that's why I really support the actions of this, of civic society groups, such as Ireland's Future. Why I think the work that's been done across a whole range of academic institutions at the moment is vitally important. But it's why the shared island unit needs to go beyond the narrow focus it has given. There is a huge degree of work, as many people have suggested, like Billy Kelleher and Jim O'Callaghan, etc., particularly from Fianna Fáil. It's important to remind ourselves that Micheál Martin several years ago promised that Fianna Fáil, in opposition, would produce a white paper on unity. I was actually at the speech where he announced this, but then went on, not to, I won't say to do nothing about it, but certainly no white paper on unity was ever produced, though I know several people who contributed a great deal of work towards it. And that's work that needs to be done. And it's a responsibility for all parties. Because unity is not the sole slogan or the sole mantra or the sole raison d'etre of Sinn Féin. It is the raison d'etre for most political parties. It is done within the constitutional requirement that came in in the Good Friday Agreement and the new Article 3. Because it has to be done on consent, freely given, north and south. And we need to become persuaders for unity. That is a long gradual process which takes a great deal of work a lot of that is done but now it's a matter of pulling it together that's the work we should be engaged upon i think the shared island unit could be a very very important center of gravity around which that work happens because a lot of it is completely consistent with, with the work of the shared island unit anyway that's my thoughts for this week i hope you enjoyed this and we'll talk to you again next week and in the meantime take care Bye bye <laughs>